Hi, this is Maggie Rose, and you're listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. I started this podcast to showcase women in music who inspire me and who I want folks everywhere to know about. My guests are icons in contemporary music, independent artists, studio musicians, hit songwriters, and power players behind the scenes. All of them challenging the status quo, respecting the hustle, and leading the way for women following in their footsteps. Salute the Songbird is a platform for women in music to share their stories and let their voices be heard. And everyone has a seat at the table. Welcome. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Salute the Songbird. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for all of your wonderful feedback and words of encouragement. The insight you've been giving me is really motivating, and it's just been an absolute privilege to be able to put this podcast together. Some exciting news that I want to share with you is that my first single, Do It, is coming out on February 19th, and it's off the project, Have a Seat, that I'll be releasing later this year. I got to record it down at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, with Ben Tanner of Alabama Shakes producing, and it's music that I've been so anxious to share with everybody, and the moment is finally here. So, we're going to do some exciting things to prepare for the release. I'm having a show on Valentine's Day at 3rd and Lindsley in Nashville, Tennessee. You can listen to the show live on Lightning 100 or stream the show on nugs.net, and... For all the Salute the Songbird fans, I'm going to do something super special where before my set, I'll host a live episode of Salute the Songbird with the fabulous Elizabeth Cook as my guest in front of a socially distanced crowd. So that's going to be really fun. I would love for you to be a part of that. So now, today's episode is with a Grammy-nominated duo. I, unlike other episodes, do not have a personal relationship with them yet but I've become a fan of their music. They're serious musicians, very charismatic. I've been listening to a lot of their interviews. They're whip smart and articulate. It's two sisters. This will be my first time interviewing two people at once. And I'm a little intimidated, but mostly excited, very excited. So let's get into it. This is Larkin Poe. It's so nice to meet you, even though it's virtual. <laughs> I'm such a fan of you guys. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having us. I am so excited. I have so many questions and I'm drinking a glass of wine. So if you would like to get that <laughs> or a cup of tea or whatever is cozy. There you go. Cheers. Love it. All right. I'm just gonna start by saying that you guys are like the most beloved, talented duo that I've heard. Everyone that I talk to just absolutely loves what you guys have been doing. And you've done it for such a long time, but you're so young still. I mean, you're a few years younger than me and I haven't been to half the places that you've been. And I feel like I work my ass off, so I can only imagine just how much you guys put into all of this. So I salute you. This is Salute the Songbird. Thank you so much for joining us and for everything that you do, putting your music out there. But this was a show that I wanted to do, especially this year with 2020 being so tenuous and difficult for just normal people, but especially musicians. It's definitely presented its challenges for us to keep doing what we want to do and connect with our fans and with each other. So this was my way to keep reaching out to people that I admire and who inspire me and and letting the world celebrate them along with me. So thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And y'all are in Nashville, right? We're all Nashville girls. We are, yeah. Um, are you guys in the East Hood? We're actually down by the airport. We're kind of in uh, in Donaldson proper, if you will. But uh, nice. we're originally Tennessee girls. We were actually born in Knoxville, but our folks raised us in Northern Georgia. So it's been like a 25-year you know, return and getting back to Tennessee finally. I love that. Well, we're glad you're back and... Do you attribute a lot of your musical sensibilities to the East Tennessee sounds and the appreciation for both blues but country? Because I think that you guys transcend genre in many ways, and it, partly because of your capabilities. But where did that come from, your, your love for blues music? Growing up listening to a lot of like Southern rock and classic rock, like the Allman Brothers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we were classically trained kids, but we fell in love with bluegrass in our teens 
you know, we've been searching for that sort of a Southern sound. So listening to the Allman Brothers, we kind of wanted to go back and do our research to see who might the Allman Brothers have been listening to. And um, that's what led us to falling deeper in love with the blues. Because, I mean, everybody listens to blues, even if they don't think that they are. <laughs> we all we all are blues lovers. Um, but it, it's been great in the past few years, really having a deeper appreciation for those artists that really pioneered so much of the music that we listen to. Absolutely. And, you know, I feel like you both are unapologetically contemporary blues artists. I mean, of course, you've gotten Grammy nominations for the works that you've done in that category, but it's not necessarily something that you see a lot of young musicians pursuing with the conviction that I feel like you all are doing. So you did your research to figure out how did the Allman Brothers get from A to B and in a retrograde way, that's how you guys found yourself singing that music. And you're two of three sisters. I'm one of three as well, but neither of my sisters wanted to make music with me. <laughs> Instead, they're attorneys. <laughs> but you guys had, I mean, right off the bat, you were playing the Grand Ole Opry and you're on Prairie Home Companion and playing Bonnaroo and doing things musically that a lot of adults can't attempt to do, but also a lot of children don't find themselves having a propensity towards bluegrass music. So did you just feel like the outliers when you were young and, and <laughs> oh playing Lord. in these different arenas? Yes, this is Rebecca, the, the younger of the two sisters. We began playing music at a very young age. So music was always a huge part of, of our everyday life. We started classical violin and piano lessons at like three and four years old. So we were really lucky that our parents from a young age were just steeping us in musical tradition. And it wasn't until our preteens that we actually really got involved in bluegrass, which is kind of ironic given that we are from the South and um, you know, grew up in Northern Georgia where there were a ton, like you couldn't spit and not hit a bluegrass picking session, but we had never come across it until we hit 11, 12 years old. And then our family went to a bluegrass festival together. And that was the real conversion moment where we just fell in love with the spontaneity and the tradition and the skill and just the, the overall vibe of bluegrass music. And that was, I think, the real beginning of, to this point, our lifelong love of, of Roots American music. But needless to say, we were the most uncool teenagers of all time. <laughs> I mean, we were uncool. <laughs> playing bands. Okay, so, oh. <laughs> Megan, thank you for phrasing it the way that I was trying to gently put it. I was like, that's a little unusual to be a bluegrass lover as a child, like you probably didn't find other peers who you had a lot in common with who were your age in that focus. So I find that to be something that's super interesting. You guys were somewhat of childhood stars with <laughs> playing on the Opry and, and being on, on TV and having music take you to all these exciting places early on in life. Did that, because I know that your sister Jessica ended up not pursuing music with you guys and you were the Lovell sisters and then you disbanded and you of course started Lark and Poe. But why did you both decide to continue your pursuit of music and Jessica not? Man, um, I feel like the whole compounding effect of us being, you know, a touring band as children was in large part due to the fact that we were homeschooled. So there was a lot of things that were in our favor of um, having a lot of free time um, and especially the ability to travel to go and play gigs and to have this kind of a glorified hobby because we definitely viewed music as, as a hobby. It, was, it wasn't something that we were pursuing as a profession because we were so young at that point that it, I don't think it had even dawned on us that it was mm -hmm. a possibility. Um, especially because both of our folks are doctors. And so I think that we all from a fairly young age had a pretty clear roadmap of what was ahead of us and being professional musicians wasn't necessarily on that map as a destination but lo and behold the music industry is like a, a war of attrition over time and I think <laughs> like the fact that we started as you know 14 15 year olds um, touring pretty heavily from the very beginning to now as you know 29 30 year olds doing the same thing it did galvanize I think it really did tick a lot of the boxes especially for Megan and myself in terms of the recording and releasing process of music, starting our own record label, 
um, performing, uh, always being on the move. We really connected with a lot of that. Whereas I think our eldest sister, um, who is five years older than me, three years older than Megan, she, I think, came into her own and realized it wasn't the way that she wanted to structure her life. Because as you can attest to, it's, um, it's not it's not, glamorous. it's not a glamorous way to make a living by yeah. any stretch of the imagination. You really got to be in it to win it because you love the lifestyle. So I think that we, um, we definitely have realized that it's the only thing that we want to do with our lives outside of, you know, be humans and maybe have children at some point, but making music and releasing records and touring and playing gigs and upgrading the show, like it's pretty exciting. I listened to your conversation with my buddy, Andy Frasco, his world saving podcast. And I can't remember, I apologize, which one of you said this about touring, but I almost spit out my coffee. You're like, it's more work horse and less show pony. <laughs> the, whole, <laughs> the whole approach to this touring yeah. thing. And I was like, that is so perfect because we, we have this big highlight reel essentially in what we put out there. You put the best recordings that you've managed to put together out and, and just social media and everything and how we present. But it really is so hard. We're toiling away. You guys were all over the world for a stretch of time. And, and I looked at your calendar, you have all these dates to make up due to the pandemic and they all seem like they're overseas. Um, so it had to have been a pretty hard schedule that you guys were maintaining before everything shut down, but you make it look glamorous. And I just love that quote, but I absolutely <laughs> feel what you all are talking about and how prolific you've been in this year alone with self-made man and now kindred spirits that you just put out in November is being in the studio and working at that pace, which you must love. Is that a way to deal with everything going on? Is it your therapy in a sense, because you guys are cranking stuff out at, at an unbelievable rate? What do you say? I, I think that we are very goal oriented people and suddenly we were kind of thrust into the abyss of time this year and felt like it was the time to time to take advantage of being home and record and we we love to stay busy you know and um, be constantly having something on the horizon so we've definitely found found ways to fill our time and that's been for us you know making kindred spirits which is a record that I don't think that we would have made this year if we hadn't been home and, and also so many, you know, live streams and then continuing to make, make videos twice a week. Uh, so I think it's been, it's been great fun in spite of uh, the changes. Your covers, I love your original material, but I think it's really cool that you are able to put an album together like Kindred Spirits and make songs that are really familiar to everyone sound brand new and recharged with emotion. And what is the importance of, of performing covers to you? Is it a learning experience? As a songwriter, there's not a very clear path towards craftsmanship you know because like when you first start writing songs um I, I know this feels like a very roundabout way to answer your question but you know like when you're learning guitar you can sit down and learn other people's riffs and solos and you go back and you learn the Jimi Hendrix solos and you learn the Brian May solos and you do that you listen to the records and you transcribe and I think a similar process of learning people's songs is really the clear-cut way to to learning how to write songs yourself so in a very backwards way I think performing a lot of covers and over the years at this point like learning upwards of 150 200 songs um, and I and really learning them interpreting them in our own style has informed the Larkin Poe voice in a way that I don't think that we would have anticipated but it's been really key so finally having the time off the road unexpectedly to work on kindred spirits we were able to stretch out and really give, you know, this gift because it, it has been a gift to us 
Uh, this, this, this cover series online has gone viral. It's brought so many people to the Larkin Poe cause that we wouldn't have known otherwise. We have traveled around the world and you're in Japan and somebody is at that show in Japan because they saw you cover In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins or they saw one of the cover videos. And that is so endearing to us. Um, and we wanted to, to, to give appropriate homage to that experience and that a people Follow Larkin and Poe feel very passionately about a lot of these covers. There's a lot of emotional attachment for these songs. So to go through and, you know, select a few of the existing songs from our, our online cover series and put it into an album and to be artistic with it, to like really get in there and, and make it feel timeless and, and hopefully something that really reflects, like you're saying, a new light on these existing gems. I mean, these are some really heavy hitting songs that we are just like anybody else gifted to be able to, to put in your own mouth and spit it back out. And so it was, it was definitely a learning experience making Kindred Spirits. It felt very gratifying, I think. Would you agree, Megan? Absolutely. And we got to record this album kind of unlike we have before, which was just the two of us in a room playing live and putting it, putting it down and, and trying not to tweak much with it. Which is hard. That was, that was new. That's the hardest part. I, I, and I've heard you all refer to, and I'll move more chronologically after we talk about Kindred Spirits so people can know more about your story. But, you know, I've, I heard you talk about the manicuring that we can do sometimes to our own work where you smooth out all the wrinkles and imperfections and then it loses that life. So you can hear the energy of both of you playing together and the spontaneity that you captured with these songs, but you also are capturing the attention of a lot of the people who wrote these songs in the first place. And it's a testament to your abilities as collaborators, which has been like so many exciting points in your career have been you guys lending your talent to other projects that aren't necessarily your own, but you're such a fundamental part of that. So let's start back to where we left off with Jessica deciding that this lifestyle is not for her. I don't blame you, Jessica. I hear you, girl. I probably would have told myself <laughs> when I was younger, uh, this is going to be difficult. So maybe she's the smartest of all of us. But uh, you guys started Larkin Poe in 2009? Beginning of 2010. Technically, we started our Facebook page for Larkin Poe January 1st, 2010. Was that like the day Jessica <laughs> decided she wasn't going to do this anymore? We'll show you. Yeah, right. We did. We had a lot of conversations, I think, at the end of 2009. And, she, and we were pretty sure that she was going to kind of phase out. But we waited. We were very, you know, strategic, as strategic as you can be when you're like 18 and 19, you know. I didn't remember that. Yeah, no, I went back and looked at one point and it's, we, we released it on the 1st of January, 2010. And uh, yeah, and that was the, the beginning of, of Larkin Poe, the, the next chapter of the Lovell Sisters. And frankly, we just, we kind of just changed the band name because nobody knew if we were the Lovell Sisters or the Lovell Sisters. Sure. So we figured we needed a, a fresh start. And, um, and I love the story behind Larkin Poe because you kept it familial. Of course. Mm. Great, 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 great grandfather. Our great-great-great-grandfather's name was Larkin Haskew Poe, and he was, in fact, a, a distant cousin of Edgar Allan Poe, the poet. So we like so that. That's so cool. I'm yeah, a Maryland like girl. It. I love uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Marylandum. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the poetry, I guess, lineage has followed down and trickled down to you guys. You have that poetic streak, so it makes sense that you're related to him. <laughs> um, I love that you kept it in the family and that you honored your great, great, great grandfather. Who was he? Was he a figure that has a legacy that you guys want to honor? The heritage of our family um, passed down in story and the way that we really identify as, as kind of like a, like a group. Our mother's people come out of East Tennessee and our father's people come out of Alabama. And so the stories that have been passed down... Um, and Larkin Poe is on our paternal side of, of the poverty and the hardship endured, but also the resilience and the strength and the creativity in spite of being stuck, you know, in the Great Depression and um, really hard, hard times of, of living, being able to pay homage to that. Also, given that we are playing music that is rooted in 
in Southern culture and Southern tradition, it all, it all fits together. It dovetailed nicely, I think, in our minds. I love it. I think that it's, it's important and it shines through in your music and your brand. Uh, you're self-sufficient, both of you. I can say that because you hit the ground running. You put several EPs out that you had self-released. And so after you released your five indie EPs, you were tapped by RH Music, which is a division of Restoration Hardware. So I guess their good taste extends beyond their furniture <laughs> if they signed you. Was, were they an effective label or how was, how was that relationship with them? Did you guys feel that you got the creative control that you deserve? We were very fortunate, I think, in, in all the dealings with, with RH. They're not actually a label anymore. They have since shut down. And I might even look at it, you know, when you see a toddler and like they learn how to ride a bike and they get going and they're like, they're really going, but then they get speed wobbles and gravity takes over. I feel like that was kind of the period in which we as a band and also RH as a label kind of found ourselves at a certain point. We released a record with them, Ken, correct, Megan? Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was our first time ever taking a more, and I'm using air quotes, traditional approach to making a record in terms of going into a proper studio, working with a producer that was selected. You know, we had a trial period in which we tried out some producers and ended up moving forward with, with one and, um, and made Ken. And it was, it was an, a learning experience for us. Um, but I do think it was a catalyst for us in subsequent records in taking more control, taking the reins more firmly in our own hands, because at that point we were learning a lot about who we are as people, who we are as artists. And so we needed the time, I think, to, to understand that we had the power to, to stand up and actually be who we wanted to be and not rely on the artistic opinions of people around us. And it really boils down to whatever works for the artist, right? There's, you know, 18 bajillion ways to skin a cat. And we have found the way in which we want to skin a cat. And that is when in 2000, when did we make Peach, Megan? Oh man, 2016. I don't I know. I think it was 2014. Oh my Lord, Seriously? Really? That's crazy. Oh my well, goodness. Peach is awesome. The story behind that, it's so inspiring for me i'm an independent artist as well and hearing you decide to not only produce your own record but then didn't you all play every instrument on that record where did you record it we recorded um and actually we've done a handful of projects with one of nashville's unsung heroes mr roger allen nichols he engineered the project he engineered the project at his studio it's Tone studios in uh in berry hill Roger Allen Nichols is um, just the most supportive figure that you could ever sketch out for an artist to find. Someone who is a true collaborator, really interested in um, helping you realize your own, your own voice, pushing us to, to make every creative decision. Because we went into the recording process of Peach on the other side of, of Ken and Reskinned, kind of the two iterations of album that we released with, with Restoration Hardware really being control freaky. We were like, we want to do everything. And um, when we actually got in the thick of it, realizing that we didn't particularly know how to produce a record, um, there were moments where we were waffling, you know, like, what what do you think, Roger? Like, what do you think on this? And I love to this day that Roger maintains, he's like, nope, you guys are producing the record. It's, It's up to you. You have to make the decisions. And really gave us, he served up some tough love in some of those moments where I think, you know, as an artist, you you do have those irresolutions of, of what you think should happen. So we learned a lot in a very quick period of time, having worked with him on Peach and um, the subsequent records up to Kindred Spirits. That's so cool. So he's part of the team, but he's saying all the glory is yours. And then if you make the mistake, that's all yours as well. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> he's smart. Well, so did you feel Peach was sort of the line in the sand for you to set a precedent for how you're going to take your artistic control completely make it your own and lead the charge? Was that sort of the moment, that project? I think so, yeah. Just watching us in the studio with the producer, I think that I kind of came out of that that experience feeling um, really strongly that we needed to do it ourselves, that it was just gonna be kind of like a rite of passage. And so I think Rebecca has felt a little bit more hesitant kind of going into the recording process of Peach, but 
I was really pushy with it. And I think that was a, a big turning point for us because we came out of Peach headed down the path of where we wanted to be. We knew that we wanted to um, produce records that were a little less produced mm. and more raw and full of humanity and feeling. Um, and I think Peach started us down that the right path with that. Um, of course, every record you you know you listen to it and you see where you would have changed things or. Um, but you know I think I think that that was the turning point for us. With Peach and the success of that, then you guys were tapped on by T-Bone Burnett to be a part of the new Basement Sessions, which I was geeking out over because you've now made me aware of that project in getting to study up on you guys. And you were working with some heavy hitting names like Elvis Costello and Rhiannon Giddens and Taylor Goldsmith of Dawes, who's one of my favorites, and Jim James. And how was that whole process just the overwhelm that I would feel in a group like that would be one thing, but then also just the cool factor of being a part of a project that's so legendary and a reimagination of one of the best songwriters, Dylan. It was, it was incredibly exciting to be involved. And so I think the excitement of the days probably overrode any nerves it's tricky sometimes to balance being self-conscious, right? Like when you're in the room with people that you really respect and you're wanting to mind your P's and your Q's when really what, what you're there to do is to just throw caution to the wind and hope that something really marvelous and creative happens. I think in that recording session, getting to, to kind of be in the room with some of these bona fide professional song craftsmen and women and arrangers and performers, it really upped our ante, I think, in terms of what we then realized was possible. A lot of those songs on the album were written and rehearsed in hours, you know. They were, they were brand new songs being performed with this abandon and this raw energy. And to be able to be within that, the middle of that fire and try to, to measure up and bring something to the conversation, it was, it was a lot of pressure. But I do think pressure and time make diamonds. So like if you're willing to, to be in, in that moment and feel that pressure um, and really have faith in yourself to deliver, suddenly the world continues to open up in a way that you wouldn't have anticipated. And so I think, again, having the good fortune to be offered these opportunities over the years, um, the pressure is very high um, and the professionalism is also very high. It's allowed us to, to mature, I think, a lot more quickly than, than even in the years of, of early, you know, Level Sisters days, where you mentioned we were getting granted a lot of opportunity to, you know, be these kind of child star things. But when you go back and you watch any of the footage and you listen to it, we realize how young we were and really how inexperienced and green. And at least at this point, it's like, oh, we're finally starting to sound like budding adults almost. All right, <laughs> here we go. Let's buckle up, babies. I think your evolution has been astounding. and really fun to watch. And you both seize these opportunities with the new basement tapes with Glastonbury. You had back-to-back -back number one albums on the blues charts that you both self-produced. And now with the creation of your imprint, which I find to be really impressive that you're able to manage to somehow do that while also simultaneously seizing all these other opportunities and executing them beautifully. Was that something that you both wanted to do so you could provide similar opportunities to other meritable acts? Did you feel like it was more for the control of your own careers or was it, is it both? Is it many things? I'm sure it's many answers. I think, I think at the time it was to seize control of our, our business and um, to really push ourselves to make, hold the reins fully but I think that it, it, could be, it could be both for sure. And I, I do see us helping other artists as well find their way. Yeah, because I think that we, we are making music, all of us, in a very, I mean, this, this word is so un overused this year, but precedented times, like the changes that we are seeing in the industry, even just based on 2020 with all the touring going away, even previous to that massive change, young artists are really placed between a rock and a hard place in terms of trying to have the time and the 
and the funds to figure out who you are. Because unless you're, you know, Tom Petty or Prince and you just come out of the womb writing hits, the rest of us, you know, mere mortals, like we need time to figure out what we want to say and who we are and, and what genre that happens, what instrumentation, you know, what kind of a light show, what are you going to wear when you do that? There's like a lot of questions that you have to answer as an artist. Um, and I think sometimes there is a lot of, of pressure placed on artists to outsource, to believe that, hey, my inclination may not be the right inclination. I should definitely rely on somebody who has more experience. Sure, like, help me know what to do, big record label. But now we're entering this new chapter where it's like, the big record labels are very few and far between. And also they're ill-equipped to deal with the genre blending that's happening. But even now, we're not making records that get played on the radio. A lot of bands aren't making records that get played on the radio. And that can either be, depending on how you interpret it, a real bummer or a major piece of freedom that we all can take advantage of because we now have the advent of, of social media and and the ability to, to have a lot of independent resources to, to release your own records. And that is hugely empowering when you instead look at it as a, as a gift to be able to make the kind of music that you want to make. The tools are out there. All you got to do is pick them up. You know, that's pretty cool. Absolutely, That is so cool. And that's the future. And I think those are the people that you really believe. And those are the artists that have sustainable careers. If you're not chasing a radio hit and you're doing what you love to do, then I think people are smart and they can sense that authenticity. And I think also you have that unique experience, both of you being sisters, which I haven't even asked the obvious question yet of like, what the hell is that like? Because <laughs> like I said, I have two sisters and they never offered to be in a band with me. So I'm kind of pissed at them about that. But you also had to evolve in the, in the spotlight. And I think labels should be there to help with all of the things you just mentioned, but also with the development of artists so that they can try some things out and not fail, but at least see, okay, this is not where I want to go. I'd mm -hmm. like to go pivot in this direction. And I think these days, big labels are saying, we'll throw some shit at the wall. And if it doesn't stick, we're moving on to the next one. Mm -hmm. So yeah. doing everything on your own terms is something that I can hear through your music and it resonates with me and self-made man. That's, that's all you got to say. I mean, your <laughs> album title, I think that's part of your identity and that's what gives you power and you take up space that I think some women, frankly, are reluctant to take up in, in this world, especially the blues world. And you guys know how to play your instruments and, I can imagine that there were times throughout your career where you got up on stage and you knew exactly what your setup was and people were not yielding to you about your own show and maybe going to the guy next to you or <laughs> you're creating a template that hasn't been in place before with how you're doing it. Do you agree? And that's why you had to start this label? I think that we're fortunate to be doing what we're doing in the time in which we're doing it because granted there have been incredibly heavy hitting female musicians who have come before even from heart when you think about heart or linda ronstadt being one of the first like major female rock artists with some i mean when you go back and listen to them you're like ah that's not really rock but at the time it totally was you know and it was fierce at the time and fleetwood mac and you know there's a and bonnie ray oh my lord bonnie ray but i think the vast majority you know when you when you go back and you start listening to a lot of these records as you're saying and blues music and you know, country genres in terms of visibility and having these role models for younger women to see what is possible, there aren't as many to look back to for inspiration. So I think being a part of this new generation of women that really are taking over a lot of, you know, more roots American genres by storm. When you look at the Grammy nominations, it really reflects a lot of, a lot of women. When you look at the festival lineups, a lot of women. And that's very encouraging because we do need that equal representation of creative perspective because if you don't, you're just missing out on half of the story. And that half of the story is really cool. It's really unique. It's really interesting. So being able to play blues music from a female perspective, it's refreshing. And I find it endlessly inspiring when we show up on festival bills and there is, you know, other women that are out there doing the thing. And when you show up at the Bonneries of the Glastonbury's and there's you know, chick-fronted rock bands. It's like, yes, it's about goddamn time. Like, right. thank goodness. But I, we certainly can't take credit. Um, 
because I do think it's, it's the droplets that make up the wave, you know? guys kind of remind me of heart a little bit Love i got to talk heart. i had nancy on this podcast and she's one of three as well and the three sisters thing their eldest sister decided to not pursue music as well but she says similar things about her experience and taking control and taking charge and revering your craft and paying tribute to the people who paved the way before us but you know you guys are label heads your producers, your musicians, you're touring, you're beautiful. Like there are so many points of strength that you have that you're exemplifying that make you guys inspirational. It's nice to see someone just deciding, I'm gonna just do it my own way and do it on my terms. I feel like you'll be able to make music for a very, very long time if you continue doing it the way you're doing it. That means so you are much. awesome. Uh, yeah, you are you so really are. Yeah, and so well spoken. Like it's it's a it's a joy to hear you speak. Well, thank <laughs> you for saying that cuz I was actually going to bring that up. I was like they are so articulate and smart and I sometimes when people say that to me in interviews I'm like, "Well, what was your expectation?" But you <laughs> truly are so well spoken and it's it's almost frightening. Like I, I was listening to a couple of your interviews during this and that's another point of power. I think that being intelligent is not something to shy away from, especially when you're speaking about your craft. And you know, I think sometimes people might dissuade, I've felt this, dissuade you from being too lofty about what you're speaking about or exerting too much authority. There's something that's not inherently feminine by some people's standards mm. about that kind of behavior. And I think that you guys disregard all of that and, and do anyway. And there's also just the category of music that you play, you revere blues. And I'm sure that there are executives early on in your career who said, you can have blues sensibilities, but maybe we should be in a more marketable genre. And I'm just so glad you didn't deviate from that. But was there ever a point in your career where you were feeling pressure to not really tuck into your blues sensibilities and be straightforward contemporary blues artists because <laughs> of a marketing agenda? I feel that um, very early on, like with the relationship with the previous label and production relationships and, and even in, in pursuing co-writes, etc., where we determined pretty quickly that we can play well with others, but we don't necessarily want to play well with others. Because starting as 18, 19 year olds, initially a lot of our living was made touring as side guys for other bands. So I think it's part of our like artistic physiology to be able to chameleon ourselves into musical situations where you're at the back of the stage and you're looking around, your head's on the swivel and you're like figuring out what you need to do in order to make the thing fly. And, uh, and you learn really quickly, especially like when you're young and green and you're paying attention and you're hungry and you're ready for the opportunity, what you need to do to contort yourself into that right puzzle piecey shape to fit in. And so I think while that is a huge asset to our musicianship and our ability to perform under pressure and, and make music with other people and be team players, it conversely can cut you down because you can listen to what people tell you and you can be exactly what they want you to be. And I think at a certain point we realized, like Megan said, I was a bit uncomfortable um, accepting the production mantle and, you know, ousting anybody who might have a different opinion within that sacred place of the recording studio because I maybe was a bit fearful about whether or not we had the goods, right, to back it up or that we were doing it the right way. But ultimately, as we said previously, we've established there's 18 bajillion ways to skin the cat. And so what's unique about each and every artist is that they skin the cat in their own way. And that's beautiful. And if you really stick to your guns and you don't have anybody in the studio influencing you, if that's what you need as an artist, maybe that's the right move. For us, it was the right move. Can't say that's the right for everybody because everybody's different. But I think uh, we quickly... Uh, ousted anybody who might be like you know what maybe you should be more marketable we're like no 
yeah. no, no. I think it's taken us a, it's taken us a few years to realize that no is a very powerful word mm-hmm. and uh, knowing when to say yes and when to say no is it's really important as an Amen. artist. Amen. And that's where the, the work horse versus show pony quote really, <laughs> I will, I will say that so many times for the rest of my life. Cause you do, you feel like you're only seeing the beautiful sides of this and for someone to suggest that you dilute what you're doing to fit a mold that's already been filled many, many times and produced so many times over mm-hmm. is something that I feel like has ended lots of artist careers too early. And you guys have pushed through and done the work to figure out who you are. So I don't think that you should allow anyone to tamper with that or disrupt it right now. Well, thank you. And you know what? There's no shame either. I feel the the whole workhorse show pony thing could be interpreted in in, a, in many different ways for different people. But I really respect the workhorse. Like I really like that path. I the artists that I appreciate are those that have really been the nose to the grindstone. And for instance, Bob Seger. Like Bob Seger is one of these guys. You go and you watch interviews, and he's totally not a rock and roll guy. Like in the way that he presents himself, you know, he's talking about. Yeah, I load up the van and you keep expenses low and you write the song and you work and you sweat and you sweat and you sweat. And like everything that he's saying is so antithetical to the whole like smoke and mirrors of what you think a rock star should be. But deep down inside, Bob Seger, and obviously as represented on the, the charts of you know American radio over the last 50 years. The people have spoken. The people have spoken. He is the dude. That is the true rock and roll spirit. That is the thing that I think artists should aspire to towards is um, the internal integrity of knowing that, you know, wherever your backbone is, you got to take the time to find it and then cling to it, man. Do the thing that, that, that brings you joy and that makes you like you. Not that we don't all enjoy a trashed hotel room story. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Didn't you all tour with Bob Seger? We did. That's so cool. And he is such an institution, but gone are the days of here's your tour bus Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're all going to dinners, like you're on the run, you're in a sprinter van, you're trying to find a healthy meal on the road. That's a struggle. But it's the beauty of the two hours that you get every night to play music and connect with people. I miss it so much, don't you guys? Mm, deeply. But you said, you know, saying no has been a lesson that you've been trying to learn and I imagine that the change of pace this year has been jarring to both of you. Has the elimination of always having to say yes or no made life easier? Or how, how are your heads right now with everything? How is your head, Megan? I mean, I love being on the road and I really do miss the, um, miss the shows and miss getting to see and meet so many different kinds of people and cultures and places in the world. They're definitely pros to being at home too. I mean, it's it's been nice to be there for family and, you know, we get to see our husbands, you know, more than we've ever seen them before. Um, <laughs> so there certainly are, you know, pros to being at home. I think it's just been been very important to, to kind of keep the nose to the grindstone um, so that we feel like we are still moving forward. But yeah, I do think that whole say yes to everything. We, we've been bitten in the butt a number of times mm-hmm. at that. And it's, it's a lesson that we're, we're continuing to learn. So yeah, it's, there is a certain amount of pressure that's been let off for these past few months. Absolutely. And in no way does it look like you guys have been just sitting around. You've continued to be incredibly prolific and you've put out so much music, but of course it's been in a different form and an approach to what we're used to. But do you think that it will recalibrate just your approach to touring from here on out? Like, is there, is the threshold lower than what it was in 2019? I'll be curious to see. <laughs> I think time will tell. <laughs> I think time yeah. will tell. I think everyone is, of course, so eager to have the return that I can, I can see us hitting the road pretty hard. There are certain thresholds that I think we would prefer not to hit. Like, I go back and I watch them. Um, some live footage from 2019 and I can hear it in my voice, how strapped we were, how literally exhausted. Cause I mean, we were, I think we bit off a bit more than we could chew on some of those tours. Um, just in terms of a festival on the East coast and then a red eye to the West coast for another festival and then a red eye up to Canada for another festival. And you just, you know, as an organic being, you can't withstand that type of abuse. 
Mm-hmm. And, and especially for me as a singer, because I mean, I, I actually feel like this year has been very interesting for me, deriving so much sense of self from being in a touring band. It is weird to figure out who you are in the absence of waking up everywhere with somewhere to go. It's definitely been a thing for me to like unbraid. I do really miss it. But by the same token, I think this has been a very valuable experience to, to take a step away and to remember, wow, okay, you only get one shot at this. You really don't want to blow or burn yourself out if you can help it. And you really need to take time to like decompress or like ask yourself, how am I feeling today? Because when you're <laughs> right. on tour, I very rarely do you actually have the time to reflect. A lot of times it really is the, the stuff down, stuff down approach that can lead artists to get in a, in a very unhealthy predicament. So for me, it's been a very valuable year, a challenging year perhaps, but because um, I definitely lean towards workaholism. Bless. Go, go, bless. go. I you feel know. like I'm in a therapy session. You're, nah. you're reading my soul right now. It's true though. And then it's like when you finally do have a moment to decompress, of course, we're not confronting these deep-seated issues that mm-hmm. we've allowed to accumulate. And you know, I think having the stillness at first, I, I felt the identity crisis for sure. And then mm. you push through and realize, okay, there's a wholeness about me as a person that I haven't been addressing that goes beyond just those moments on stage or connecting with people or mm-hmm. the visibility of what we're doing and the validation that we seek and you know all the reasons we make music. And I think this year has been a great opportunity to entertain some of those other facets of like who we are as artists so that when we reemerge, we'll be better people and hopefully have a lot of fodder to write about. Absolutely. And you guys were also, you were hitting the road so aggressively because you were on the heels of a Grammy-nominated album with Venom and Faith. It was nominated for a Best Contemporary Blues album. Huge, huge accomplishment. But it's hard to, I imagine, even harder to then say no to opportunities that arise because you think success begets success. So I think it'll be pretty awesome for you to reemerge knowing that all of that success was maintained and sustained even without having to hit the pavement so hard. Yeah. And that is, it is empowering to have those realizations because I think that's part of the human psyche too, is that we're able to, to worry about the future in, in such a distinct way that very rarely ever comes to pass. Like you're saying, if I don't hit the pavement running hard and I don't say yes to every single show, then I'm, I might very well just, you know, squander my opportunity and go and have to, you know, figure out how to be a barista or like, you know, something like right. these, these really extreme, you know, motivating carrot in the stick situations that you create that aren't actually very beneficial for, for artists. Like you really do need to, to take it as it comes and to allow time to breathe and also to not resent the parts of the job that are tough. You know, I think a lot of artists nowadays, you know, especially in this year, we've been stretching into the social media aspect of being a band in the 21st century. And, um, and I think it's very easy to resent sometimes what feels like an invasion of privacy in, in the art or whatever, in, you know, in the constant live streaming or chatting or um, posting on social media every day and all that right. kind of stuff. When instead, you, you know, you don't feel beholden to that. You realize it, it is a gift. Again, it supports everything that we've been discussing, the, the independence that artists are now allowed and the ability to connect in the absence of, of live shows. It's, it's a pretty powerful, powerful machine that we all get to be a part of this, this whole human culture thing. Yeah. It's a big experiment. Yeah, right. And and it is it is exciting to think about uh, the return of shows and um, what will happen for Larkin Poe in the next chapter and, and writing every day, right? I love it. And you both have incredibly talented spouses. So you guys just picked the best musicians and married them. <laughs> so you have people to collaborate with at home. Yes. Megan, your husband plays with Jerry Douglas. That's right. Yeah, Mike Seal. You can't, you can't suck if you play. Amen. Amen. Um, Mike Seal. And then of course, Tyler Bryan and Shakedown. Amazing band. And you guys got to work together on Kindred Spirits, correct? We did. Yeah. You guys are putting the family to work. I like it. it. (laughs) I really, I enjoy that. I think we always aspired to, you know, to be a musical family and we are kind of the first generation in in the level clan. and, And it's cool to have brought some really amazing people and humans, but also musicians into the fold. And yeah, Tyler in, ended up engineering Kindred Spirits for us here wow. at, at the house. I love it. He's been acquiring, acquiring so much like recording gear. And I'm just like, yep, 
he's my brother-in-law, so he has to let me use it. <laughs> so now you have not only your sisters to work with, but now your in-laws <laughs> yes. to that yes. collaborative dynamic. What could go wrong? Nothing at all. Well, I mean, you can, you can air out all your grievances and feel completely candid. You don't have to censor yourself, at least, I would imagine. It's very nope. true. The lap steel is one of my favorite instruments, and you play it so well, Megan. How did you stumble upon that instrument? And like, was there a designation of instruments when you guys were really young that you were like, I'll be the guitar player? How did you find the fitting instrument? We kind of both gravitated towards our instruments. I mean, I tried to play guitar. I thought I might be a banjo player. And um, me and fretted instruments don't go go together. And, you know, we grew up listening to a lot of Jerry Douglas, but I had never connected what instrument was making that sound until I saw a dobro being played for the first time. And um, I was so struck by it and knew immediately that that was kind of what I was searching for. So... I picked up picked up Dobro. And then as we were, you know, wanting to become a little bit more rock, plug in a little bit, you know, maybe get some drums going on, lap steel was the the obvious choice for me since I could I could just tune it the same and um just just switch over. And I kinda at first was very reticent to pick up lap steel, but when I finally did, I realized that actually is my my true calling. I mean, I connect so heartily with the lap steel, it's, um, I really don't know why it's not a more common instrument for people to play. Um, especially within rock music, I think it's just, uh, the perfect instrument, um, for rock, like a soaring guitar solo is great on a, on a lap steel. I, uh, I wish it wasn't relegated so much to just, you know, just country music or, um, I don't understand that Hawaiian music. Yeah. Because, and you called it a third vocalist. I can't remember <laughs> where, but I love it because it's true. The control that you have and just how much dynamic you can squeeze out of that instrument is vast and it's impressive. And I think it fits so well in the ensemble of music that you guys put together. And then this is why you remind me of Heart because you're like just Nancy Wilson on the guitar shredding away. And Oh, that's a huge compliment. <laughs> I love her. Formidable musicians. like you both just are damn professionals i tell you <laughs> thank you it's really oh fun to watch the only enduring argument about uh personnel that we have had was who was going to have to be the lead vocalist that was really neither, neither of us wanted to be neither of us wanted them <laughs> really? to mess around with that oh. uh-uh. Uh-uh. just wanted to play the guitar and, yeah. and frankly i think it's a little bit funny megan that you're like i don't know why it's not a more prevalent instrument because it's hard the lap right. like, play in tune i tried to play like lap steel and whatnot and, and at a certain point it was just too infuriating i was like it sounded like a cat being killed in some very traumatic way inside a <laughs> wet bag and you're like no i'm just gonna stop but uh it was a real come to jesus moment whenever megan informed me as the elder sister that in fact i would be the lead singer and that was that. <laughs> That's the older. I was going to ask what, you know, the pecking order, if anything, gives you a little bit more authority in certain situations. <laughs> oh, yeah. Only occasionally. She brandishes that that ultimate trump card with a, with with great aplomb. She's very kind to me. She, she's strategic about when she flashes that card, though. When I put the foot down. You can't always do it. But when you <laughs> use it, you use it. Well, I love your dynamic. I can't wait to just follow you guys for the rest of your career. I'm a fan for life. And I hope that young girls and boys not only get to understand your music, but your story and all the roles that you're playing in your life and realizing these aspirations that you guys both share. I like to end these conversations because these are all conversations with women that I admire by asking my guests not what they feel the plight of being a woman in the industry is, but what the advantages are to them. Because I think that it's pretty dope being a woman. I'm enjoying it for many reasons, but we often focus on the disadvantages. Yeah, yeah. I love this. It's a, I, I'm just sitting here reflecting on, on how many interviews we have 
been party to over the years. And that's the first time anybody's asked that question like that. Hats off to you, dude. I'm all about that. Cheers. Um, you know what I, what I feel is like the superpower personally? I love the ability to multitask. I think that women are like the kings of the multitask. You know what I mean? And I think that that has been a great, a great gift to us in our endeavors of writing and recording and producing and um, labeling and whatnot, you know, trying to, to wear all the hats at the one time. Um, and I think that's a great skill of being... I see that. I see our mother exhibit that like mm-hmm. mom can do 18 bajillion things at once and, and the bread is not burned. No, it is perfectly golden brown. <laughs> the babies are clean and you know, over the years. Yeah. Multitask. I love that. Well, you're definitely exemplifying that skill very well. Megan, how about you? I would say that I think as women, we've been able to cultivate a very warm and welcoming space for the people that we work with. I think women are, are, are very good at, um, at interpersonal relationships and, and being welcoming, you know? So I think that we have like a, um, a space where people come together, you know, our bandmates and our crew, and we feel like a family. I love that. I recognize both of those skills and attributes that you both have. Huge fan. You guys are the best. We salute you at Salute the Songbird. Thank you so much for your time. I have Back at you. <laughs> a million other questions I could have asked you, but I really enjoyed this and learned a ton and can't wait to see you guys continue to excel at what you do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk with you and, and thank you so much again. I hope we can meet in person. We'll meet in person in 2021. I, I look forward to it. So thank you guys both so much and hopefully I'll see you soon. Yeah, back at you. Take care. Bye. Thanks. Bye. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. And you can keep up with Megan and Rebecca on their socials at Lark and Poe. Make sure to check out their new covers album, Kindred Spirits, along with their most recent, incredible full-length album, Self-Made Man. You can keep up with me, my music, and my touring calendar. And follow me on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at I am Maggie Rose. And you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash I am Maggie Rose, where you can get exclusive Salute the Songbird content along with new music, live stream concerts, and more. You've been listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. The executive producers are Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton from Osiris Media and Austin Marshall. And the show is edited and mixed by Brad Stratton. Original music by Maggie Rose. Please subscribe to Salute the Songbird on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, recommend it to a friend or leave us a review so that others can join the conversation. Thanks for listening. And to close out the show, here's a tune from Mark and Poe featuring Rebecca's husband, Tyler Bryant. This is Back Down South from Mark and Poe.
again Put your ear to the ground Where the brothers are sleeping And you can still hear the sound Of a band that was singing About a sky that was blue They sang it for me And now I sing it for you Streets ago 